0: This is a relay project.
1: Seriously. 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 Seriously.
0: Seriously, Seriously starts now. Here's Sapria and Ryan. Hey, hey, it's Wednesday morning, November 2nd. And you're listening to Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. I am Sapria
1: Devetti in Toronto. Ryan Jesperson here in Edmonton. It's nice to see your face, my friend.
0: Always good to see your face, Ryan. Um, Quite the the week in terms of American news anyway. Um, We should probably get this right off the top. But Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, was attacked um, in his home in San Francisco by a man wielding a hammer.
1: Yeah, says he was there to uh, to uh, interrogate Paul Pelosi's wife, uh, a.k.a. Nancy Pelosi, uh, one of the most powerful politicians on planet Earth. Uh, and, and and maybe the bigger picture, shining light on exactly where the world is at right now, including the United States, the political climate there leading the charge. Uh, the former president's son, Donald Trump Jr., figured it, it was perfect inspiration for his Halloween costume uh, with a pair of underwear and a hammer going as Paul Pelosi uh, too soon, Sabria?
0: Yeah, I mean, fuck, I think so. <laughs> um, but it, that is the political climate. To your point in in the states, and I think that's just where we are. Um, where you have at least a good chunk of folks there, and you know, to be fair, here too, that are just dicks and want to be dicks to the people that they disagree with, um, and that's a problem. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail <laughs> yeah, later exactly, on in the show.
1: Exactly. The, the big story probably around the world. Well, I shouldn't say that the big story around the world should be like Ukraine and and Pakistan and and what's happening in Iran. And uh, but everybody and we can't help ourselves talking about Elon Musk officially Twitter's owner and changes in store. Are you seeing some differences even in your your follower count? Are you seeing a lot of people drop off? I've noticed it from here.
0: Yeah, actually, the follower count is an interesting one. I think I've lost, uh, I don't know, three ish hundred folks, um, which I don't know. um, Is that people just piecing out, you think?
1: Like, what is it? Yeah, I've I've wondered if it's just people taking off or if it's it's bot accounts being shut down. I don't know. But but it's definitely noticeable. and, And that's just one of the changes. I mean, that would probably be a positive Uh, losing reasonable people from the forum. uh, I don't think is a positive. It's the same thing happening on Twitter. Maybe that's happening in politics, which is the, the generous empathetic kind skilled talented reasonable people leaving uh with the house on fire and the keys left in the deadbolt. uh maybe the same thing happening with twitter but of course elon saying that there's going to be user fees people are going to pay to keep their verified status and the like i'd be curious to see what this looks like a year from now
0: yeah totally and if twitter is even still a viable <laughs> platform for the folks who use it quite regularly you think it will uh, be Do
1: you think twitter's going anywhere
0: so th- I don't I don't know I I don't like making predictions like this I think it will re- retain the folks who are I don't want to say obsessed with it but like use it on a very regular like the high engagement users or however they would be um, described as like you know journalists um, folks that are. Uh, perhaps in media, in other respects, like whether you're in the entertainment industry or something like that, where you need to you know reach out directly to a large group of people and it's just con- a convenient way to do so. But I've said this before, like I don't see necessarily what the appeal of Twitter is if you're not a journalist or if you're not in news or media or um, one of these you know professions that uh,
1: requires you to be in the know uh, at all times. Yeah. I think people are going to stay, stay around. I think people are going to stick around. I think Twitter will remain, uh, at least in the near future, but... We'll see. Uh, the, the crazier it gets uh, with Elon in charge, probably the more enticing it will be, or at least more intriguing to people. And for that reason, I think that might be key to its survival. But the, but that the, the monetization of it will be interesting to watch. Uh, people that use it all the time, like you're talking about the high engagement user, if it ends up being eight dollars a month for somebody like that, that's nothing. That's less than what they're paying for Netflix. Uh, I think people talk twenty big, is a lot. I think though. people will stick around. Twenty is a lot. I don't yeah. think. you'll I mean, be could you
0: give it up? Like you tweet quite a bit. Uh, yeah. No? I, I mean, know.
1: Uh, you know, you ask somebody who who smoked for 30 years and doesn't anymore, if they ever thought they could give it up and they'd say no way. And then they look <laughs> back now yeah. and say they can't imagine life with it. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But like you said, obviously it's, it's, it's big uh, when you're in our business, trying to push out messages, trying to share content. And for that reason, I, I think it would be uh, almost foolish to leave, but at the same time, it depends stuff to say right now. It still feels reasonable. The minute it stops feeling reasonable, I think a lot of people would be out of here. Uh, we'll talk about Colin Thatcher in the Saskatchewan legislature a little bit later well, in the show. That was a story that I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around. And then, of course, there's, there's the ed worker strife in Ontario that's got Canadians brushing up on the notwithstanding clause too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, once again, uh, folks are <laughs> fervently searching what Section 33 yeah. Uh, means. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail uh, as well. The, you know, EA inquiry, the Inquiry into the Emergencies Act uh, continued this week as well. Um, some news on the uh, immigration front, Canada is saying that they're going to plan for half a million immigrants by 2025 um you know a lot of that driven by the labor shortage yeah um, that we're seeing here
1: yeah lots to cover in this edition of seriously we'll get to it here's a headline you, you might have missed as well on monday td economics releasing a report about the job vacancy gap in canada and, and the gist of the report essentially is we're still seeing a huge number of job vacancies uh of course Sapria, that means something for employers it does. It means upward wage pressure. Yeah, exactly. Upward wage pressure. Not great news for employers, especially nonprofits and associations.
0: Definitely not great. And when employers need to pay more to attract and retain talent, they need to offset that cost somehow.
1: Would you believe me if I told you that one way to offset that cost is actually through? their training program. We know training can help you create amazing courses and monetize them to become a high-performing revenue stream.
0: Yeah, Ryan, that's right. You know, they've already helped one association gain an extra $3 million in revenue growth while completely
1: transforming their training program. Plus they're not just an LMS or e-commerce platform. They can do everything from instructional design to course distribution, to learner support. So absolutely everything is handled for you. Plus they really invest in their partner's success.
0: Let We Know Training partner with you to create a training program that's impactful within your industry powerful and profitable. Learn more about we know Training at WeKnowTraining.ca. The lead.
1: If we don't cut this out right now, not just the normalization of violence, but the idea that reality can't even exist anymore because it cannot catch up to the lies on the internet. I'm not a scholar on authoritarian history, but I've, let, I've read Hannah Arendt, I've read all of these people. Mm-hmm. This is how it gets really bad. This is the start of something that gets really, really bad. If you are getting the guardrails off the truth, where it literally cannot catch up to the lies on the Internet because of how the pipes work, how the system works, because of the incentives of the richest people in the world, then that's how you lose your democracy. That's how you lose your democracy. That's Ben Collins from NBC News.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, we touched on this at the beginning of the show, but just to catch everybody up to speed, what Ben Collins is referring to in that clip is the fact that after Paul Pelosi was attacked in his home, who is, of course, Nancy Pelosi's husband, um, a lot of folks were tweeting about it and Hillary Clinton tweeted about it. And then Elon Musk replied uh, that there's more, there may be more to the story than meets the eye. And he tweeted out a literal uh Fake news link. Um, I hate using that term, but it is what what, what it what it is. Um, in which the author of the article um, may or may not even really exist. Where we're not exactly sure, but we know it's a dubious source. And on the uh, Trump land GOP side of the internet, there is a theory which is you know false, um, but that Paul Pelosi was in an argument with his gay lover. um, And that is what led to the attack um, instead of the actual facts and the reality of what had happened. And that's what Ben is referring to here is that now you have a huge segment of the American population that believes in this, you know, this, this theory that is demonstrably false. And yet we cannot catch up Uh, truth with the speed at which these these lies um, propagate on the Internet, including on on Twitter and including by now uh, the world's richest man, but the dude who owns Twitter um, doing this sort of thing. So not great all around. The
1: the guy that owns the platform, the guy that, that, you know, to a certain degree turns the tap on and off, so to speak, or at least sets the policy or the direction of the site. I mean, it's about way more than just Elon Musk here, obviously. And and I think Ben Collins does a, a good job of of, of, I think he doesn't understate. He doesn't overstate. I think he this, this is just a fact. And the fact of the matter is, is that if there's not a shared set of facts, then what does that mean for dialogue? What does that mean for interaction? What does that mean for democracy? What does that mean for the truth if it can't keep up? All of those
0: things die. Democracy dies. Truth dies. Facts die. And, you know, I'm I know I'm like a broken record on this. And I've said it here before. I've said it on on your show, Ryan, when I do that, that Friday spot on, on Real Talk. But this is we're going to a really bad place. And, you know, it's funny sometimes to look at what some of the nuttier things that politicians say. Right. A lot of the time um like haha world economic forum great reset oh what 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 a silly thing to to sort of put out there but um it's corrosive and there's something to be said when you have large segments of your population that are just in a completely different information ecosystem and cannot agree on these facts and i don't know like how how do we actually go about a democracy if we don't have any shared facts like i don't think we can um uh, and that's your good news Wednesday morning tidbit for today. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, I realize I'm being quite a downer right now.
1: No, well, but, but maybe sometimes we've, we've got to call a spade a spade. And and right now, I think, you know, when we talk about a threat to democracy, when you talk about democracy dying, I think a lot of people, maybe even the average person would, would roll their eyes. Come on, you guys. Come on. You know, yeah. democracy is not going to die. I think back, I mean, the January 6th insurrection, not that long ago. Was that not? The wake-up call that everybody needed, I mean, didn't, did, didn't that prove that these things, even in what we see as the most developed nations, the Western world, the bastions of democracy, that they too can be and are vulnerable if things get out of control? I mean, what qualifies as out of control? What qualifies as red flags or troubling to people that aren't troubled by what we're seeing right now?
0: But I mean, no, to your question, like, first of all, yes, like it was a troubling thing. But like January 6th didn't lead us to a place where we actually took this sort of thing seriously. And we're seeing that in the way that the mainstream legacy American political media tends to position both parties um, in the lead up to the midterms, which is, you know, which are next week uh, as two equally viable parties and not one in which there is a uh, fervent and vociferous anti democratic streak in one of the two main parties. Like, it, it, it- and then we had our own freedom convoy and in our own freedom convoy, the stated goals were to overthrow the government and had all sorts of conspiracy theories, um, you know, um, waffling about within within the, the mix. And we didn't really take that seriously. And one of our main parties, you know, the so-called government in waiting, um, one of the only two parties that's ever really in contention to form government in this country was outwardly supportive of this movement and the party. And, and, and so I don't. Uh, yeah. To answer your question, I, I don't think we do. And I think that leads us to a bad place. But, you know, you touched on Don Jr.'s Instagram uh, post or Twitter post, whatever it was, talking about his Halloween costume. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How much of our modern you know, political dialogue is really based on the fact that you've got two camps who have maybe less in common within their own camp. But what they really, what really brings them together is the fact that they fucking hate the other side. And it's really just out of animus and spite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just seems like everything is, uh, uh, or at least a lot of the things that are posted, a lot of the initiatives, a lot of the dialogue, the memes. I mean, we've boiled down our political uh, debate. We've we've boiled down our interaction to memes and gifs. But uh, it's it's essentially just an attempt to hold own on, the on, other side. On. One yeah, second, yeah, yeah, you yeah. say gif. Well, I've heard that. There I'll used, die on this company There was—I com- was, don't care that much. There was a company in Edmonton <laughs> called Jiffy Cat, um, uh-huh. and they did really well. And then they sold to some one of the big players and, and made all their money. Um, so that led me to believe that it was Jiff, like Jiffy Cat. And then the more I would say Jiff, then people like you're doing right now would <laughs> confront me and say, "It's GIF, you idiot! It's GIF. What are you boomer? It's GIF." Yeah. And so now I just—you I- know what? Whatever, if you want to, you know, take uh what would you call it, like our our seriously style guide. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to plant a flag, I'm yeah, it's Jeff. I'm doing it, Jeff. Okay, all yeah. right. So okay. our political debate and our interactions is boiled down to gifs and memes and owning the other side or at least attempting to do so. It's really dumbed it down, but it. But it's also working. It's how people are winning elections and uh, not just arguments. And uh, I, I don't know, to me, in in the short term, uh, it makes it fun to watch, uh, depending on your definition of fun. But in the long term, this might be what burns the entire house down.
0: Yeah, man, no kidding. And like, just really quickly, because I did touch on it in terms of uh, the American political media on the legacy front. Um, how do you think the Canadian political media should be uh, covering our own moment with with this sort of thing? Um, because, I mean, I've been quite frank about it. I don't think they're doing a great job. Um, I would go so far as to say it's suboptimal. Um, and I don't know uh, how th- we can, you know, Credibly say that we're going on a right path if we don't get better in how we report on these things and talk about them more generally.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I I do think that there are people trying to drive the conversation like we're doing, which is why it's so important for everybody to tell their friends to subscribe to Seriously. Why everybody needs to share the link to this podcast and let us know what you think about it. But you know what I get concerned about is is when journalists want to state the obvious and let's draw the line too or the the distinction. Let's differentiate between journalists and columnists. I think that columnists have a very important role to call these things out, to paint the pictures that need to be painted, including uh, delivering reality checks when and where they need to happen. And this Emergencies Act inquiry is a good opportunity to do exactly that. But when people start to state things definitively, which oftentimes is necessary in breaking down something like this and analyzing it, helping the public understand the ramifications of it, well, then what happens uh, media writ large is accused of politicizing everything of being in the pocket of of one political party or another of attempting to influence folks opinions and that's what i think is difficult too because in extreme circumstances it's not the role of anybody including journalists to simply stand by and watch the accident happen right it's like a a snowy hill first thing in winter when cars forget and half of them still have their summer tires on sapria and news reporters (laughs) with cameras just go to the bottom of the hill and roll video so they have crash footage to use i mean we're seeing that happen with our democracy we're seeing that happen with our politics but it's not a spectator sport So I think a big part of it is on journalists, and I think a a big part of it as well is on the general public.
0: Also, there's this.
1: Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. I know that that collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. It has to be done in a respectful, thoughtful way at the bargaining table. Uh, The Suspension of people's rights is something that you should only do in the most exceptional circumstances. And I really hope that uh, all politicians call out the uh, overuse of the notwithstanding clause to suspend people's rights and freedoms. All right, so Canada's Prime Minister calls this overuse of the notwithstanding clause as Ontario's Premier Doug Ford invokes it to prevent education workers in Ontario, not teachers, but uh, support staff from striking. Probably the first time in a while that the average Canadian has, has, has brushed off their, what is it, grade... 11, grade 10. I don't even know if we covered this in social studies in my high school, but should be high school learning. Section 33.
0: Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, I think it's interesting that uh, whatever truce or bromance that Trudeau and Ford had going on, Trudeau has broken that um, by coming out so strongly against it. And Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan also had some very strong words uh, about the use of the Notwithstanding Clause. This is the second time that uh, Premier Ford has uh, used it. Um, He was going to use it for cutting the size of Toronto City Council, but then he didn't ultimately have to end up using it. And I... I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing, because the notwithstanding clause is obviously in there for a reason. Um, it was you know, said to have been included as like a last measure sort of resort if uh, there's an impasse and it needs to be done. But, you know, we've seen at least in in recent years, particularly in, in Quebec and Ontario, um, the use of the notwithstanding clause and in Quebec, even using it preemptively um, in a, a couple of instances. And so, I don't know, there's always this like trepidation, I think that uh, especially federal politicians have when it comes to reopening the constitution, because it was, you know, a bit of a, I guess a cluster bleep when, when they did it the first time around. So like, uh, are we okay with premiers using the notwithstanding clause? Cause if we're not, we should probably talk about it, no?
1: Mm, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm a little rattled that you're censoring yourself on this edition of Seriously Okay, the Cluster. Okay. Cluster yeah. fuck. there, yeah, sorry, was, there oh. we go,
0: yeah. Ooh, yeah.
1: there we go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's there for a reason, it's there to be used. Uh, I'm not necessarily defending or justifying the use of it, but I'm not convinced that it's unconstitutional to leverage an option that's there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, like you said, we, we've we've seen it in Ontario. We've seen it in Quebec. We're probably going to see it in Alberta. I mean, I think probably the first time that I that, that I, I learned a little bit about the notwithstanding clause was back when, when our former Premier Ralph Klein talked about invoking the notwithstanding clause when it came to gay marriage or marriage equality. So that was not exactly the most flattering context for Albertans, especially in hindsight, but it's something that, that put on the radar that it's something that could be used. So... I've been paying attention to to what some people on Twitter, uh, educated voices on Twitter, have had to say about this, uh, I- including some PhDs, including some political scientists. This was an interesting one from uh, Tyler Lougheed, who says, you know, the Emergencies Act was tyranny, uh, but invoking the notwithstanding clause is OK. And then he has that, hmm, the thinker emoji. Uh, meantime, University of Alberta political scientist Dr. Jared Wesley says, listen, reasonable people can condemn both Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act and Ford's use of the Notwithstanding Clause. He says it strains credulity to to state that either move was clearly unconstitutional. Now, he put out a whole thread. People should read it for themselves at Dr. Jared Wesley on Twitter. He says both moves are provided for in law. Neither man is acting like a dictator. Both are accountable to legislatures elected by voters in many ways. What we're seeing now, a full inquiry, public scrutiny, followed by legislative debate, court action and eventually elections is the epitome of modern liberal democracy. So that was a take I thought that had some value.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's a a good reason take. And part of what he said, I think, is uh, especially worth highlighting, which is, In the case of Ford and Legault, for example, um, they did go to the electorate shortly after uh, invoking and using the notwithstanding clause, and they were handed both of them, uh, you know, increased majorities. So uh, it's clear that at least um, the Twitterati and the general voter uh, seem to have different views when it comes to uh, the invocation of the uh, of the notwithstanding clause. But I don't know, man. It's like you mentioned um, that when it was first floated in Alberta, it, it being used for for marriage equality. I mean, are we really OK with premiers um, trampling on on fundamental rights? Like right now we're talking about this in the abstract. Right. But like it, it may not be in a few years time where we're in a, a situation where a premier wants to just, I don't know, invoke it because he wants to or she wants to limit access to reproductive services Mm. or in some other areas that folks would consider um, rather fundamental. And it's worth noting, at least in Quebec's case, right, both Bill 96 and Bill 21 aren't exactly uh, rights affirming legislation um, by by any measure. Quite the opposite. Um, Yeah. So like, I I don't know, it's uh, it just I I agree with everything that is said. I think, you know, to your point, it's in there for a reason. So use it. But I think it should be used sparingly. And I don't know if we're seeing that. And I don't know if I necessarily trust um, a lot of our provincial leadership Mm. um, present and
1: future uh, to be the to be like the guard keepers of this. So what you're saying is let's not normalize the notwithstanding clause. Uh, Let me ask you something. Strategically speaking, when it comes to the court of public opinion, so to speak, does the premier, does premier Ford um, have some momentum in his corner? Or does he have maybe that winning hand, uh, the premise of keeping kids in school? I wonder if that's a winning position to take these days. Danielle Smith along the same lines uh, in in Alberta, or at least maybe on parallel lines uh, with her, no more masks in schools, no matter what. Uh, proclamation just this last <laughs> week. I know, I know, I know, I know. People in the podcast. No matter what, you know. there's
0: a deadly new strain <laughs> yeah, of, and yeah. we're not masking. Was fuck that.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yee-haw! yeah. But you know, let's bring it back to Ontario. Do, do you think that Doug Ford has that? Is is that a, a, a you know, with regards to where the majority of the public might lean right now? The the idea of keeping kids in school does that give him maybe a little bit of extra oomph?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it will probably be slightly to the premier's advantage on this, um, just given that parents, particularly in Ontario, where we did have, like, I think the longest school closures during the pandemic, um, in like all of North America, I think, not even just in the country. um, So parents are tired. But, you know, there's something to be said about like the optics of not properly compensating custodian staff or ECEs or, you know, folks that have been um, also working quite hard and with inflation the way it is. Uh, I don't know if um, the provincial government in Ontario comes across as, you know, there for the working um, Mm -hmm. man or woman, a person, and uh, that is what they tend to build themselves out, right? Like fighting for you, fighting for the little guy type thing.
1: Ultimately, it's crunching numbers, right? Uh, political calculus, what's the winning position to take? And, of course, on this one, only time tells. Seriously? Mr. Speaker, last week, uh, there was an individual that attended the speech from the throne who should not have been invited to do so. The invitation being extended was a, a terrible error in judgment, and I have taken some time this weekend to reflect for personal, some time for... Some personal reflection to think and to listen. To listen, uh, first of all, to my family, uh, to friends, to listen to colleagues, and to people across this province indirectly and directly.
0: Okay, so that was the apology that Premier Scott Moe gave on the floor of the legislature for having invited a convicted wife murderer. uh, to the throne speech, and you know, Ryan, I, I will confess here: I did not know who Colin Thatcher was, having grown up in Quebec and you know now living in um, Ontario. It was not like a household name for me by any stretch. But when I saw my Twitter feed light up with all sorts of journalists being like, "What the fuck? Why would this guy be invited?" and then seeing the initial reaction from um, you know by politicians in Saskatchewan being like, "Wow, whatever, he deserves to be there," and it's like, what? Um, And this apology from Mo there is also kind of weird because he's like, I listen first and foremost to my family. Like, what? You know what? I appreciated
1: that, actually.
0: Did you? Yeah, it's like I your did. wife had to tell you that was a fucking dumb thing to do well, you know that's what he's referring to. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, my wife is pissed. I don't know if he has a daughter, but like my daughter won't talk to me. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe my son, you know, insists I should do better. I I appreciated that he said, take some time to listen to my family and friends because it, it shines a bit of a, a light that this is not, uh you know, the Saskatchewan party leader, the premier of, of Saskatchewan, you know, uh, bending over backwards to appease the opposition saskatchewan NDP. MVP. That's not this. I mean, the you know, Colin Thatcher, who brutally murdered, he beat and then shot his ex-wife, Joanne Wilson, by the way, who had left him, who had started a new life. Um, he he maintains his innocence nobody believes that bullshit Uh, but he did do his time okay so that's the context he's a former MLA himself his dad Colin Thatcher's dad the former premier of Saskatchewan and so when Lyle Stewart the MLA uh, who's lost his his uh, you know he he had a special post there I can't remember what parliamentary secretary or something he was stripped of some title uh, for making this 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 egregious error in judgment um, you know it, it surfaces that Lyle Stewart who, who invited Colin Thatcher there a former EA of his by the way like like decades ago uh, he goes on the record when questioned by reporters and says nobody deserves to be here more than Colin Thatcher not just I guess we can admit it but nobody deserves it more and you've got a lot of people suggesting that I don't know maybe Joanne Wilson might deserve <laughs> to still be walking around enjoying life maybe the family of joanne wilson might deserve to be this throne speech Sapria, the theme of it tough on, tough crime. on crime unbelievable oh, unbelievable we can't help but call them how we see him, and we sure appreciate when uh, seriously subscribers let us know what they think about what they're hearing on the podcast as well
0: Yeah, you can always get in touch with us on Instagram at SeriouslyPod, on Twitter at Sapria and Ryan. Check out our website, seriouslypod.com, and you can always send us emails as well. Talk at seriouslypod.com.
1: You bet. It goes a long way for us when you rate and review the podcast. If you're listening on your phone right now, you just scroll down to share, and you can send it to your friends, those other politically engaged Canadians that like to know what's happening in the world around them without all that noise. We're here every Wednesday, Sapria, my friend. I'll see you in a week.
0: Sounds good. Seriously is hosted by Supriya Dwivedi and Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer John Hicks. Executive producer Josh Dunford. Account coordinator Lawrence Turlego. General manager Katie Cook Shivers. Human resources Lena Shepherd. Voiceover by me, Tanji. Seriously
1: is a relay project. For more, check out seriouslypod.com.